in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I am your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host from right here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Mr. Chad Robinson. How you doing, sir? Doing well, everybody. Excited to talk about some movies. Look at that. Professional. He's under the weather, people. He's playing through. Yeah. Uh, this is my Michael Jordan flu game. It's going to be an excellent episode. All right. So we need to call somebody else in here from deep in the heart of Texas where it's hot, hot, hot. Mr. Dustin Melbardis. How you doing, sir? Ooh, 105 degrees Fahrenheit. Hot, hot, hot. I am hot, but I am ready to relax and talk about an awesome movie. Now, today's movie features a guy getting in trouble with an amusing story. What is one, like, amusing story for yourself where you got in trouble? Could be the cops, could just be school, parents, work, etc. Chad. I think I will share this story because it has Brian Fry chiefly involved in it. I was running for a position within our student council, and I was a bit of a naive Christian kid. And Brian says, hey, why don't you end your speech with a joke? And he provides me with a joke. And so in front of the entire student assembly, I, I said, and Brian Fry has given me something to end this with. Save a tree, eat a beaver. In front of the entire school. I did not know what that meant <laughs> until a teacher explained it to me later as i had gotten in trouble my parents received a note as well oh really i didn't know this part of the story oh oh yes my mother did not know what it meant but my father did and it was explained as dinner time conversation so thank you brian fry yeah i didn't know the back half of that story i just i was there for when it happened and i thought my first thought was Chad, people like you and I don't run for class president. What are you doing? And then secondarily, then I was like, we should. <laughs> and then secondarily, I was like, wow, that joke got, he got away with that. Cool. <laughs> I did not. Because <laughs> I expected you to be pulled off stage or something like that. So that's funny. Um, Dustin, yeah. how about you? I have lived a life of getting into trouble. Um, so much so you might say I have a particular knack for it. Uh, the most amusing stories, which you asked for, are the times that I broke the law and didn't get caught for it. Uh, but there was one time that I made the cop laugh uh, by saying, the only reason you're arresting me is because I look like a Mexican hitman. Uh, it was after a wedding, so I did. Um, I read a lot of Calvin and Hobbes growing up, so making mischief was part of like a duty that I thought I had to adhere to. I kind of walk around with this aura of like pushing the limits of what could be expected from me. For instance, in high school, sharing high school stories, uh, I was a valedictorian, straight A student. So I broke the, what in high school, I broke the uh, dress code all the time and I didn't get in trouble. But I did one time get a stern talking to because I told my homeroom teacher to open her ears when she didn't hear me say present for a roll call. But I didn't get detention because I just had this aura of like, okay, well, you knucklehead, well, get back in there. My, my stakes are lower. So in seventh grade English, my teacher was having one of those meltdown days. Seventh period, she just must have had a headache and 
taking it out in the class and did the whole like nobody talks today which is weird because you should talk and teach and learn and stuff so like and it was literally a quiet time for an entire period that is unprofessional and so uh i treated that unprofessionalism with equal amount of respect because as soon as she said that like and everybody was like oh crap she means business i didn't take her to mean business i mean john slack co-founder the show with me sat in front of me and i tapped her on his shoulder and i was like hey john and like, apparently the room was quiet and I didn't notice. Apparently I was given a little bit of grace period, but I didn't see. And then, so she was like standing right behind me. I turned around and said, oh, you actually meant that? And um, I got uh, lunch. Yeah, I got, I got lunch detention. The class laughed at that pretty good, but I mean, didn't, it didn't help. Yeah. So um, uh, it got a good laugh anyway. I took my science teacher's egg timer and started like doing, like marching around like a parade, like using the egg timer as like uh, some type of bell. I got detention for that. Yeah, I'd never stuffed anybody in a locker, but and I wasn't really a bully, but all my best friends were bullies, so I would get looped in with the bully type stuff. But, you know, you grow out of it, or sometimes you don't. And now I'm here on the round table. Then what's the last movie you saw, Chad? Last movie I saw was Dodgeball, a true underdog story. I have to say this is Lance Armstrong's greatest crime. <laughs> it. <laughs> It's not the doping. It is ruining an otherwise perfect movie with his stupid cameo. It was so funny at the time. And it's like, yes, you overcame. And that's a great line. And now it's not because he's a cheater. Yeah, I don't think I've seen it since it, since the cheating scandal. But uh, Dustin, what about you? What's the last movie you saw? Sin City with mm, Bruce Willis good. and Jessica Alba. Good one. And I, I also was in the mood. So I watched The Spirit afterwards and I was reminded but that is not a good movie. No, but Ava Green is very, very beautiful. She is beautiful. My uh, last movie that I saw was Beautiful Boy from 2018 with uh, Steve Carell and Timothy Chalamet. And it is a heavy movie. Uh, you know, I'm not normally a big fan of like drug movies like Train Spotting and stuff like that. Uh, this one, I think, is more effective because it shows what the family member, in this case his father, is going through. Hard movie to go through. Well made, but uh, wouldn't want to do that one again. But well acted. Hmm. Hadn't heard of it. It's not a fun time, but what is a fun time is the movie we're doing today. Dustin, what movie are we doing today? Called Take the Money and Run from 1969. All right. In 1973, the film earned $2.5 million with its uh, collective run around other countries. It does lose money. It's uh, It loses $610,000. Well, can't really place it in the box office that year, actually, because it's not really a big moneymaker. But it, it has a bigger impact and goes on to mean more. Number one movie from 1969 for reference was Butch Casting the Sundance Kid. Take the Money and Run gets a 7.2 on IMDb and a to Rotten Tomato Critics rating of 91%. So they loved it. The audience score, a um, little cooler, but 80%, but still very strong. And probably one of the reasons we're talking about this today is it's AFI puts this at number 66 on the 100 Years of Laughs. AFI's 100 Years of Movie Quotes had this one on here as well for uh does this look like a gub or gun 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 see it's a uh, ab what does abd mean that would be on the quotes list as well so afi has definitely given this movie some attention and some praise and the critics have clearly liked it ebert debated how good it was at the time uh, malton liked it but generally speaking the critics across the board did like this movie and it, it, the praise kind of builds Woody Allen's career because this is his first 
main movie. Now, he appears in other movies, but this is his first movie. Chad, had you seen Take the Money and Run before? I hadn't. No, this was a first time viewing for me. What was it like going through it? I haven't seen many Woody Allen movies, so I didn't really... I think I expected a different brand of comedy, just being unfamiliar with Woody Allen altogether. I think I was expecting a different brand of slapstick than what I got. This was almost closer to Marx Brothers-esque than it it was, I don't know, like a Ben Stiller movie. Interesting. Yeah, so you didn't have your expectations set for sarcasm and dialogue curveballs left and right. Yeah, it's, it's a weird hybrid of Mel Brooks slapstick. It is. Yeah, it's not as physical as that, but yeah, it's a good point. Dustin, how about you? Had you seen Take the Money and Run before? I had never seen it before. I agree with what Chad just said is, you know, my expectations weren't the same in that it, it did remind me of a Marx Brothers movie. But when you say like, hey, you know, not as physical, it's still really physical which was probably my biggest surprise uh, from watching it for the first and second time was um, just how much of this comedy is based on what you are seeing. I was expecting a lot more of dialogue-driven jokes and his very particular delivery of lines, but we got a grab bag of a whole bunch of different sort of comedic stylings and um, it was pretty great. Yeah, I think I liked your comparison to Mel Brooks a second ago, Chad, because like you hand Mel Brooks some material and it's going to be delivered in a way that not anybody else is really going to do. And so uh, you will have that with a number of other, you know, important comedic, you know, milestone actors and of certainly Woody Allen fits into that category. And so for me, I, I do know him as, you know, having this nebbish, sarcastic underdog kind of way of doing things. And so I hadn't seen this movie before, but I was, eager to get come to it. I've seen other Woody Allen movies before, and uh, I gotta say, I had a fun time with it. I did not expect the mockumentary format coming into this one. I didn't know the mockumentary format went this far back. That was a, that was a pleasant surprise. It goes beyond the office, folks. <laughs> well, you know, I might have overcredited Spinal Tap, to be honest with you. Mm, okay. So, I mean, Spinal Tap, I was like, wow, nobody's ever done this before. Uh, Woody Allen had. So, I mean, Spound Tap's still a really funny movie, though. I think this marks a great place for a lot of future comedic stylings to, whether they objectively said, I'm going to draw inspiration from this, there are things in this movie that when they are redone or when they are a part of somebody else's repertoire, you could say, oh, it, it had been done. Um, not Not meaning it's stale, not meaning it's tired, but to see something as far back as 69 and be like, oh, wow, this is perhaps the origin place for some of these things. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a true historian who devotes my whole professional career to this. So if somebody out there says, ah, actually, mockumentaries were around in the 1930s. And so, yes, text me and tell me I'm wrong. Um, I'm, but for, for my viewing, this is as far back as I've seen it go. So it was particularly interesting from that standpoint because – that's the type of comedy I didn't expect to see surfacing at this era. Uh, but there will be spoilers that lie ahead. We're going to get all into this one. And, you know, Dustin was joking ahead of time. The plot one really matters in this one. So you might not want to spoil this one. We'll be back after these messages. Welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason. And this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, 
a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. All right, we're back. And for those who haven't seen Take the Money and Run since 1969, Chad, do you want to refresh people's memories? Clumsy Virgil Starkwell was bullied when he was a child. He then decides to play cello, but finds out he has no musical talent. The loser joins a street gang and ends up in prison. When he escapes, he meets laundry worker Louise and lies to her, telling her that he plays cello in the symphonic orchestra. He is arrested in a holdup and Louise finds him in prison. He breaks out and flees with Louise to another state tries to be honest, but he is incapable of fitting in any job. When he finally finds a job position suitable for him, he is blackmailed by a colleague and returns to his criminal life. His heists are disastrous and he always ends up in prison, concluding with him trying to rob a friend who turns out to be a cop now. In a final interview, Virgil states that crime does indeed pay before he asks if it's raining outside. <laughs> As he's whittling a soap gun is the yeah. other part of that. So, I, I've yeah. gotten really good with my hands. <laughs> yeah. Which was a real thing, by the way. Uh, Dillinger famously escaped by whittling a gun and painting it with shoe polish. Wow, I did not realize that was a real thing, but it sure is funny watching Woody Allen fail at trying to do it, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Uh, so... It's interesting. As you read this off, this doesn't sound like a riotous movie necessarily, but I mean, what is, it's how everything is done. These things that you're talking about, we have an inept criminal, and inept is putting it lightly. He's so not cut out for this, and to watch somebody try and be a criminal, a bank robber, uh, who's just not cut out for this, and is Woody Allen as this nebbish you know, dorkish character who has no confidence and isn't, you know, he's not coming with bravado. Like, he's not going to come in like, all right, everybody, this is a stick-up, see? Give me your money. It's Woody Allen going like, uh, you know, I'd like for you to put the money in the, the bag. <laughs> so, I mean... I, I feel like that was more Walken and less Allen. You say that for all the impressions. Yes, yes, all, <laughs> all of your impressions. No, Walken would be, like, smoother about it. He's like, I need you to put the money... And the bag. Fair enough. I've, I've clearly been proven wrong. You were doing uh, Christopher Walken if, if he was Jewish? That's only when he signed up to take the vaccine and the <laughs> unexpected consequence of um, turning into a rabbi for six hours. That's yes, right. the, the experimental vaccine, yeah. That, that definitely rings true for today's times. This is the, this is the vaccine hesitancy that, that most people who uh, are vaccine hesitant in America are, are undergoing here in these last couple of years. They don't want to be turned into a rabbi as a scientist. It's uncertain whether or not they would be, uh, they would be temporarily turned into a rabbi. <laughs> I would love if that was actually on the drug side effects, like just some random one where they always have people strolling in gardens. It's like side effects include, and they give you that laundry mm -hmm. list, and one of them is able to recite the Torah. It's like, what? Right. what? <laughs> Potential uh, death, also rabbi. It's because you brought it up just now. It, I think it was, because that's so early. We jump into this so quickly. 
was I think that might have been like when when you cut to Virgil in the full garb of the rabbi talking about the meaningfulness of Passover and what it meant for the children of Israel. When it was like a quick cut to him and he's he's got a big beard and, he, and he's dressed that way. I think that was when I was first sort of walloped with the, oh, my expectations for this movie are way off and there's going to be a whole bunch of new different things that are going to be, we're going to be bombarded with them. I had something similar, but for me, it was the cellist, like watching him play the cello in a marching band, like picking up a chair and walking, like running ahead of the marching band by like, by like 20 yards, sitting down and trying to start celloing as they pass him up. And then like he picks up the chair and runs 20 yards ahead and starts trying to play cello again. Dustin, you're a marching band guy in college. Tell me this made you happy. Yeah, it was, it was wonderful uh, to see uh, the, it was another, I'm not going to say like a shock, but. I said, this is really well done. I mean, it's a small band, but, uh, you know, you had already been hit with, I think at this point, maybe three or four dozen independent jokes. And then, uh, and a lot of them had to do with like, he's not very good at the cello. Um, and other things were like, he, he's on these tough urban streets. I think within the first three minutes, he gets his glasses taken off and stomped <laughs> on the ground mm-hmm. uh, by, by other kids. I mean, he, we're shown... Like, even as a child, he is mixing things up. He isn't getting it. And then the deadpan delivery of he got good enough to join a local band. And you see it's a marching band turning the corner and he's dragging this chair behind him. And, you know, he doesn't get a single note. It doesn't matter. Uh, y- y- and that's only a 20 second bit. But you are about to get hit with a machine gun of more bits and that one is memorable, but there's so many others as well. It was it was a great way to like set the tone and, and with something quite physical because the, the idea of somebody trying to carry a cello and play it in the marching band is funny. Seeing Woody Allen and Virgil do that was wonderful. Yeah, exactly. Like he's narrating this and what he's saying is not inherently funny. The visual that goes with that is hilarious. I mean, it's a nail in the coffin that strings are the inferior instrument family and that brass rules like brass players have no problem with this oh somewhere yeah. somewhere there nathan the fellow french hornist is very happy with you yes yeah, suck at cellos we can march but yeah uh for me it was the grandpa that gets hit by a baseball it's it's one of the first things that comes up yeah he, he gets convinced he's kaiser wilhelm <laughs> and he's he's give, it's german footage in the middle of the sanitarium <laughs> yeah it's like, okay, it's going to be this kind of movie where it's it's almost the Family Guy style cutaway. Of... That is actually a really good comparison, Chad. I, I, I see like Seth MacFarlane's like random tangent of like low structure in the plot and then says something like, remember that time when? And then it just does something that's very funny and one off. And this is a little more tighter to the structure of it's all servicing his life as a criminal. However... Next thing you know, he's trying to get a job as an insurance salesman. Like these things just like they seem like unattached ideas. But then he he brings them together a little more so than like McFarlane does in Family Guy. But I see the comparison. That's a good one. I was thinking naked. I was thinking naked gun a little bit with the narration. That's very Mm. deadpan and serious while having Mm -hmm. funny things happen. (laughs) But um, that's another good. If you, you're right, Dustin. This this has influenced a number of things already, as we're talking about. We've already talked about Spinal Tap, Family Guy, and and uh, Naked Gun. These are all things that I love. Right, and you know, Family Guy's thirty years later. I was thinking of ten years later with The Jerk, 
uh, kind of that's, kind of that's using like comedy gold. You're right. And, yeah, and so if if you were to think, and I don't think I normally say when I think of comedians, whether in terms of influence, filmmaking, the amount of content that Woody Allen's put out, I don't jump to him right away. But when you see something this early, you almost begin to think, "Wow, is this a cornerstone of what a lot of successful comedy has been?" Yeah, I and I even think some Anchorman stuff is taking some influence of this, like having these people walk around this serious world. And in this case, it's not newsmen, but it's bank robbers. But like being absolutely absurd, but holding a straight face while doing it badly. I mean, it just reminds me of like, you know, Brian Fontana being like, you know, 60% of the time it works every time. Like, like with sheer confidence and like, just like, what a goofball thing to say. But like, um, it's, it's held in this world where things are taken seriously, even though it's ridiculous. I want to say something about that real quick. The, the idea of having it be this documentary format was purposefully so that these particular jokes or, or, or any slight deviation away from the serious content, which is crime, failing at crime, I guess we should say, is it's easier to get a laugh because it's jarring you off of what you should be used to. You should be used to this being a serious news story. Instead, uh, we have Louise stuffing a hard-boiled egg through a mesh window, yes. or you know, or we we have we have all of these these little jokes by themselves aren't really you know maybe that's not fair to say most of them aren't anything to write home about by themselves. It's it's a sheer volume of these, and I I found that they were um, like as as a quantity. I didn't feel like there was too much. I didn't feel like I was uh, burdened by them all. You only have maybe a handful that come back as running gags. And when you do, you're, you feel like you're rewarded, not hit over the head with them. Yeah, like the glasses. Like I, I think it was hilarious way later in the movie. He's had his glasses crushed like five times in the beginning of the movie, to your point, Dustin. And then he ends up turning his back to some goons who he thinks he's telling I can do a bank robbery, but they walk out on him and policemen sit down behind him and uh, he still divulges his whole plans for robbing a bank and then turns around and realizes like, oh, how long have you been there? And then like stands up. He's like, wow, nice, nice jackets. You guys, you guys match. And then like in a self-deprecating way, he takes his own glasses off and smashes them in front of him. Like, see, like, see? Right. Yeah. He's, he, he's used to it by now. I'll, I'll take care of this myself. Thank you. You don't have to smash my glasses. I got it. It's just interesting. The movie just comes out firing. Like, I like this mockumentary format. I, I have always liked the Green Day video for Nice Guys Finish Last, where it's a parody of, like, old-time football documentary kind of voiceovers. I like the voice that is, again, you think of this as being, like, talking about America's most wanted criminal, but it's done with, like, getting your hand stuck in a gumball machine. And, like, you know, the teacher, the teacher like, tells the kids to close their eyes and he ends up feeling up all the girls and he's bad at cello, so bad that, like, people, like, end up throwing his cello out the window abruptly. Like, the cut of the camera is just, like, you know, and even the bickering mom and dad are funny. And, like, this movie is just coming out like a machine gun, like you were talking about, Dustin. It has a high pace. And I think that might be Marx Brothers-esque, too. We have a world where things are taken very seriously, even though they're absurd, and the joke quotient is dense and coming at you quickly. Is this one of the things? Maybe it was you. you. You were the one who said Marx Brothers, like, right, Chad? Yeah. I mean, there's a clear homage to them with the glasses for the parents in the interview. They're going straight for the Groucho Marx disguise, which is, that's a great scene. 
It, I love that it doesn't do anything for them. And I love the father <laughs> just being horribly disappointed in his son, just being down the entire time. He's like, a terrible dad. <laughs> I, he's a terrible son. So, yeah. I, <laughs> I, oh, come on. If he was a good boy, why are we wearing these? Right. Yeah. Yeah, so there's well, there's very definitely... domineering you're a very domineering personality. What? I'm domineering. We'll have a discussion about this later. Right. <laughs> yeah, the the wife, the mother is is just very apologetic about the whole thing and she's still it's still her baby and everything everything where the dad is just he's had it. He's he's old school and I try not... to beat the Lord into him. <laughs> yes. Yes, I'm I'm familiar with that attitude. <laughs> Now, we also, we've talked about the crime part of this, but this is actually also funny as a, like, spoof slapsticky love story. I think the scenes between Louise and Virgil are very funny. Again, just as much as the world of crime is absurd, like, crime doesn't work this way, and it's funny to see him failing at it. Love doesn't generally work this way either. And it's really funny to watch this, you know, attractive woman, like, hit it off with him a, a total loser has got nothing going for him and like he's lying every which way and um <laughs> and they they stick it through together it's it's funny to watch these two go to back and forth i mean kudos to her for keeping a straight face as he's just awkwardly fumbling at her buttons on her blouse i mean it's it's played up a lot to get his awkwardness and his nerdiness and just his uncomfortable mannerisms around women but she's just dealing with it as he's pawing at her. Well, and that's another callback because they're not all callbacks. Like that's another running gag because he also can't get her bra undone when they're lying down at the park. Yeah. Um, and so, but th this one is definitely much more of a focus of the scene. And yeah, yeah, having her act because she's facing camera was was well done. I I think it's important to say that this he meets her because he was intending to do another crime. Yeah. Which is once like all of these attempts i don't know i didn't count there's got to be a dozen attempts at crime in this movie and uh, e the, the narrator will give you something like and here he is in his attempt to rob this bank and what he found was when he opened the vault there were a family of gypsies living in there right and sometimes all you need is the narrator delivering the joke and that's it we don't see that gypsy family again that's it <laughs> but in this case it was all right, he's walking around the park looking for another purse to steal because the purse beforehand, all it had were joke snakes and, I don't know, 30 feet of chain in there? <laughs> it, like the, These are... This, this naturally did get to, uh, a, we'll call it a meet-cute, where what he does is he, he expresses some interest in what she's doing. She responds in kind. He does lie immediately about what his job is, but he does something brave and say do you want to go for a walk with me and he ends that with do you want to go to dinner with me like that isn't so i liked her so much half an hour after i started talking to her i thought i stopped thinking about stealing her purse yeah that's yeah. incredible yeah too. he's it, it's like i loved her at first sight and 15 minutes later i stopped thinking about stealing her purse yeah yeah <laughs> and and so and there's also part of it where you have to believe that she's also a little bit Zany, uh, not not the word batty, perhaps absurd. She's a little. Uh, we do herself. learn, uh, we we do learn that she's she's not just a normal gal, because uh, there's some things that she's bad at, 
Um, Cooking but, especially. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's what I was getting at. But but also that like the patience to stick with Virgil is part of what makes this relationship work. And that patience extends all the way throughout to, you know, our, our, the end of the movie. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, naturally having it come together and being something kind of fun to see on screen, uh, it, it, it was welcome to me to see their dynamic on screen. She reminds me of an old school Harley Quinn. We've gotten a different version of Harley Quinn recently. Margot Robbie's version is very, very different. But the original that's just obsessed with the Joker and is willing to go all along with everything, I, I got a little bit of that in Louise's character. I just like Woody trying to put the moves on her. Like getting ready for the date scene was hilarious. He can't even put his glasses in his own shirt correctly. Like, you know, I mean, you know, he's way out of her league by all standards. But then that's funny, too. Seeing this guy who has no shot with this woman who I think is actually taller than him, much better looking and stuff like that. There's something physically very funny about that. Uh, having him dump a huge, like, pile of change on the table in a really nice restaurant, you know, in front of her, like, in the early going, like, it's just very, very funny. But also... There's actually a little bit of moments of sweetness, like when like they are destitute and they have no money, they share a piece of lunch meat together. And it was actually a little bit sad, but also kind of sweet there between the two of them. Like, to your point, Dustin, she sticks it out with them. And, you know, it provides good opportunity for comedy for somebody who would put up with all of this all the way. But nice little heart moment there. And I think we have to suspend belief a little bit that like, oh, this beautiful young lady would probably have a lot of other suitors. And so when... You are thinking about why is she sticking with this guy? It, it, it's almost unbelievable, especially when things get bad. And not just like, oh, my kooky boyfriend, but like, oh, we're paying for dinner with quarters that you stole from a gumball machine. Oh, they were likely nickels at the time. Or we're sharing one piece of lunch meat. Like that, that kind of thing, I think we, we have to be like, okay, sure, we're, just, we're moving this along. But uh, that's okay. It's okay that we can suspend, suspend belief. I'm actually glad there's no other pull away from Virgil. I think that's, uh, it's sweet. I feel like belief was suspended the second a gorilla chased him out of the pet shop. (laughs) (laughs) How a a gorilla came to own a pet shop, I'll never understand. Right. I like it uh, when she's being supportive of him, like, uh, you know, coffee's over here and bullets are over there. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> um, she's she's very deadpan serious, like with what she's doing. But the things that she says are ridiculous, as you pointed out, Dustin. Like, I mean, she's like taken aback by like, hey, nice drawing. When somebody looks like Woody Allen goes up to say, you know, to uh, someone who looks like Janet Margot and, you know, the, the, the response is not like, oh, you're interested in me. Oh, <laughs> like the way the world doesn't work like that's very, very funny. The, the last time I heard you use the term nebbish was when you were describing Seymour and Audrey uh, a year ago or so when we covered Little Shop of Horrors. And you, you, we were kind of discussing how it almost doesn't seem as if Aubrey should, or Audrey should go for uh, Seymour. But the way you described it was, <laughs> I remember it like it was yesterday, you said, it's like the cheeseburgers longing to be next to the french fries, and the french fries are longing to be next to the cheeseburger. And we're the audience saying, like, you work, you work together, but they don't get it here these two people are just attracted to each other and they make it work and it 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 lasts the entire thing uh, it's completely plausible but in this case it's the potato chips and the filet mignon sure okay <laughs> you're, I, I was you're wondering right if the word nebbish translated across texas 
because that is a distinctly Pittsburgh-ish term. Uh, what I think of it is, uh, like, I think of it more like a older Yiddish term. Like, uh, he's referred to as a shlemiel by one of the interviewees. Yeah. Uh, in the movie, so like, I I think of it as being kind of nerdy, meek, you know, dorky. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm also extremely cultured, Chad. I'm going to know things from all over the country, nay, the world. Nebby in the Yinzer world means just nosy. Like, right. um, like, so I don't, for my Pittsburgh audience, not that, what Dustin said, so. Yeah, he's not nosy. He, we do have <laughs> not, a... Not in the way we mean. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> But I even like their married argument between each other. These two just crack me up every time they were on screen together. Like, like uh, you know, like, because she's a laundress. I imagine that. I never knew so many, somebody who knew so much about clothes. <laughs> like, and then, like, later she has, like, you know, I'd like to wear my blue shirt. No, it, you can't wear that one. I'm, it's in the it wash. It was dirty. <laughs> and, like, and watching him, like, fake, almost watching the fake anger emerge with him was so comical of, like, what? Oh, I can't go to wear the beige one. I can't wear beige to a bank robbery. It's in poor taste. <laughs> like, yeah. I I did find it funny when she announces that she's pregnant and that's her Christmas present. He goes, "All I needed was a tie." All I needed was a tie. Yeah, that's good. And then it's not just robbing banks either. I think the scene where he gets blackmailed is very funny as he tries to become a murderer to get rid of this woman who has taken romantic interest in him and is blackmailing him into a relationship on the side trying to hook up a turkey to electrodes and failing yes. at it miserably seems to be one of the most comical ways to try and one off somebody i kind of wanted this this bad attempt attempted murder scheme to go on longer chasing somebody through a house with a car <laughs> yes that was very scooby-doo-esque Yes, it was. This is the third time. The first two were from Chad, and this time was from you, Russell, where you've literally taken the words out of my mouth. I wanted the attempted murders to go on longer, each one 10 seconds to 30 seconds, but so funny in its own way. Uh, Wonderful to see. And, um, you know, Miss Blair has a total of, what, three minutes on screen, but they matter. Uh, It's pretty, pretty fun. You're right. It's just the way that this keeps meandering. I I did kind of want him to see him get out of jail and just do this again because I didn't tire on these things. But it's a short movie also. it's It certainly doesn't overstay its welcome. And to your point, doesn't you? So they don't beat anything into the ground. I think it's good that I'm left wanting to do more of that because I don't think that they beat any of their jokes into submission uh, to the point where it just wasn't like working anymore. So, I think that's a good thing when you're sitting there going like, oh, man, I could have gone for like five more of these. I wish I could see the, the cut scenes and the improvs that didn't work out because they're probably just as funny. He apparently cut a lot of the funny stuff and it was restored by the editor. So, yeah. Yeah. What we got, I think, is one of the best versions of it because it seemed like Woody Allen was confused as far as the direction of this movie. It's not. Again, this is a first time director attempt. Right. So, I mean... Woody is running this thing from top to bottom. He's written the screenplay. He's uh, helping to get it made. He's a producer um, with him and Mickey Rose. And uh, he does have some help with the screenplay um, a little bit. But, I mean, he's he's the creative guy. He's the director. He's the lead star. This is a Woody Allen vehicle to the maximum. 
And uh, this is how he does it for the rest of his career, pretty much, until he gets so old that he starts putting other people in. And you can kind of tell when it's a Woody Allen role, and there's like, ah, I can picture, like when you're watching Midnight in Paris, Owen Wilson's character 100% could have been played by a younger Woody Allen. He just gets old to a point where he just, he's writing almost for himself, and then you plug other people in. So this is how he makes movies from here on out. And he says, I make my movies so that they can be made for little enough money to avoid the studio interference that I can do what I need to do. I'm confident I can make money. Not a lot of money. I'm not going to have the highest grossing movie in the box office in the year, but I, I, I'm a safe investment. You give me the money. I'm going to make you the money. He didn't in this case, but where he goes on with his career, he doesn't like being told what to do. He likes to have that control and it technically all starts to work for him here. So it's, it's a, it's kind of an empowering thing for a comedian to see like, Whoa, I can really run the show. And when I do that, I can be working into my old age from doing it this way. Yeah, it was a direct result of the chaos of Casino Royale. We just came off on Her Majesty's Secret Service, but Casino Royale, the, the parody that didn't really go very well. Yeah, yeah, that's a chaotic, sprawling movie that he had been involved with there too. And he'd actually reached out to the director from Casino Royale. He'd asked Jerry Lewis to direct the movie as well. And then Val Guest was the guy who, who did Casino Royale. He wanted them to help direct his movie, but they just didn't come together. So he ended up kind of getting into the role. It wasn't like, I'm going to do this. Like it kind of came to be like, well, nobody else is here to do it. So I'm going to do it. And uh, he admitted that he sought very little help um, from more experienced filmmakers once he got into it. It just never occurred to him for a second that uh, I wouldn't know what to do, he said. It just let the film and the vision that he had in his head guide for how he would do it. And it's interesting how that is what carried him. He did talk to Arthur Penn, who imparted some technical information here and there for color correcting shots and logistical details. But otherwise, it just kind of came to him of like, this is what I want to happen. So let's make it happen. And that's oversimplifying what a role of a director is supposed to do. But at the other hand, it's beautifully simple, too. Chad, what do you think about his job as a first time director? here? It all goes together surprisingly well. Yeah, it's an interesting. I I read a lot of the the roles that his editor performed for him, uh, Ralph Rosenblum, where Woody Allen wanted this to be kind of a downbeat ending, a downbeat movie. It was filled with more morose music, and a lot of that was swapped out. A lot of the ordering was swapped out as far as editing. Woody's talked about, hey, when I was a new director, I thought the what I did was do a bunch of short takes so I could cover it, all as I grew more experienced I learned I could do a long take or two or even uh, reshoot that a couple of times with a long take instead of that like chopped up version of this movie but the chopped up style actually made the editor's job easier because he could like the interview the interview was one long segment with the parents and instead the editor intersplices them throughout the movie and you kind of return to that joke and I think it's a little funnier there so he had a lot of things he wasn't able to do he wanted to shoot this in black and white and he wasn't allowed to do that they said you have to make this in color uh, some of the some of the scenes were in black and white like when you see the bank and uh, a little of the sets you'll get a black and white scene and then it will go straight to, straight back to color but yeah I I will give him credit for getting non-professionals, filling the cast with mostly non-professionals, and encouraging the cast to improvise around him. There aren't very many 
directors that are going to do that, say, get a bunch of non-actors. Yeah, he's trying to do this on the cheap, but get a bunch of non-actors to actively participate in your movie. That takes a lot of guts to do. It does, and he landed with Palomar Pictures to give him carte blanche to do what he wanted to do in this film, so he had the backing of his studio. Palomar didn't last very long, but they did quality work for when they were around, so it's kind of a shame they didn't stick around, but it set a precedent for how he would go on. It just never bothered him, and they were. it was a very pleasant experience for him, so dress, being a director is a very stressful thing, and to your point, Chad, he's not working with the most seasoned crew, but you know, if there's something that sounds unusually natural and effortless for Woody in this role. Maybe this is just what he was born to do. Dustin, what do you think about Woody and, and you know, the writing and directing chair? Or maybe it's just that the thing we immediately started doing for, let's just say the last 20 minutes, uh, was mostly recalling our jokes and quotes and things we said were funny, which I think is something that for a comedy movie you should do. To say that was funny. Remember that part? <clears throat> and we could do it. It could be the whole podcast. We're not going to do it's it. It's a pretty quotable movie. <laughs> yeah, it, it could be just us saying, you want to go over all the really funny parts. We could do that. Considering all the parts were funny, there were some things that, like from a maybe filmmaking side, you compare Woody Allen in, let's just say, 1967 or whenever, like this movie was made to release in 69. And then. You compare that 30 years later, will his more recent movies be more seamless and have a closer connection to like a theme? Probably yes, almost certainly yes. But there, there are certain things in this movie that did seem a bit strange. There was a shot on the beach where they were either in a crane or in a helicopter. And I was just like, why is this, why is this happening? Why are we up here? Twice in the movie, at least, uh, we follow a character walking from one room into another room, whether that's like into the kitchen. I think that happens in their apartment when Virgil has all the chain gang with him and he follows Louise to go have a private talk in the other room and all the other guys have to come with him. Like we follow them through the door as if we're following like in The Shining or something, like we're following someone. There were a, a couple of shots that were like, oh, this is beautiful. And then other shots that it, it seems as if there was no attention paid to, and that's unfair to say, but the same attention wasn't paid for how this should look. And so I'm never going to hold it against Woody Allen here for his first foray as what the triple threat, right? For the writing, acting, directing, because he had to do a lot. And what carries this movie are the, the machine gun of jokes, which continue to come and they're really, really good. So the filmmaking stuff that anytime I felt this is odd was immediately replaced with, but here's another great bit. Or, wow, he pulled that off? Didn't expect that at all. And so, like, like I'm, I'm thinking of, like, one of the good things that I had to, in, in retrospect, looking at the movie, the, uh, the, let's take that long interview with the parents and how it ended up being cut up and, like, put in different places throughout the movie. We only get a shot of the interviewer talking to Virgil at the very end. The very, very end. And then you get like a kind of splat, like zoom in on his face with a don't don't like kind of a silly little musical note. And I'm like, well, that seems very sitcomish. But what we're realizing is that no sitcom saw this first here and did that. But there's a lot of, I don't know, at least half a dozen times throughout the movie where Virgil is telling part of the story instead of the narrator telling part of the story. And I think it was such a, a huge improvement or I guess verse the counterfactual. I thought it was 
much better to have Virgil describing what he's doing while we're visually seeing something with no dialogue than if we were sitting and viewing the interview with him describing the same thing. Because one, that would take more time. And two, we're getting both at once, you know, a little two for one. We're seeing something funny on screen while we're listening to a very well-delivered Woody Allen joke by Virgil. So, like, that's a decision, a less is more decision, and it's great. So, you know, the, the great decisions made in filmmaking and the things that stood out to me as odd, in the end, take a backseat to what's driving this flick, killer bits. And, you know, this inconsistent cinematography it could come from... So, so this thing took 10 weeks to film in the San Francisco area. Two weeks into it, they fired and replaced their cinematographer. So the, they had recently invented a Cinemobile kind of camera set up for ISPY and a vehicle that uh, facilitates the transport of equipment from location to location because they're they're traveling around in 85 sorry 87 different locations in 50 days which is again he goes on to be more uh, more ambitious and more efficient to chad's purpose but he's actually being pretty resourceful given what he the ground that he has to cover on the budget that he has to cover so he packs so he has this mobile filming unit that he can pack up in a van and uh, to use these devices to be able to shoot as many as six locations per day, three times a day, which is six times versus the unusual three times for Hollywood at the time, results in a picture of nearly half a million dollars under budget. And so he's being incredibly resourceful. And Lester Shaw later takes over as the cinematographer during the making of it. So you do have new techniques and changing of hands in this one. So it's interesting that you picked up on some of that because honestly, I my thought was this doesn't have to look this good. The mockumentary news report style is not good camera work. And I thought that was what you should expect in a mockumentary. However, to your point, Dustin, there's some very emotional, like inducing shots like that are, there, there's some actually good shots in here. Like the jail scene right at the beginning, there's this beautiful perspective early on. And it's just like, whoa, this is, this is nice for a comedy. Good pan and zoom. Like as he's like walking around the balcony in the jail, the prison shots are look pretty nice when they're in the bank. There's some great film work that actually accentuates the comedy. The When there's competing bank robberies going on at the same time, they frame it in a way that you don't see that. And you don't know it until all of a sudden you hear somebody else's voice kick in before Woody's about to open his mouth and say, this is a bank, right. give me your money. And then it like pans over in an almost a confused way as a viewer and it's reinforcing the confusion that he's feeling of <laughs> like wait no we're robbing this bank you can't be robbing this bank and that's and a good point that yeah that's a good i didn't think about about that as a tool for our enjoyment of the surprise there's another group robbing this bank uh another time when the camera is cleverly used is uh that it, you were describing him not being able to put his glasses in his jacket when he's getting dressed for the date. He uh, can't figure out his, his bathroom fixtures, and he finally gets everything. <laughs> he takes his shoes out of the freezer, as you do, because his refrigerator is his closet. Turns on his sink to get the shower going. And he's walking out the door when he realizes he's wearing a pencil skirt. Whoops. Okay, well, let me put my pants on. Like, and and that's, that's all. Uh, that, that particular take, like, it's at least 30 seconds in when he's leaving that you see, oh, there's that pink skirt. Like, it, it's great. Absurd, even. And I don't think I was anticipating the absurdity. The chain gang is really accentuated by how those things are shot as well. Mm -hmm. 
when you see everyone on their bikes and then it pans out to him yes who has no bike <laughs> it's good it's good or when they're in the old woman's house like shuffling around together <laughs> it sets up this joke that on its own might be like laying it on a little bit thick but they lay it on so thick that it's it you just you're relishing it you're just you're really enjoying it you're savoring it and he's like what i thought they were just a close family yeah you know there's actually something here uh and i i, I do think this movie is very funny and i think there are several memorable bits but they can't all be grand slams we have a couple grand slams we have several home runs and we have some singles and doubles so it's weird to objectively talk about some of the jokes being killers and the other ones being oh, okay that's fine and i feel as if sometimes some of his greatest jokes or bits write us into a corner or write us into a situation that it i don't know if they were written out of well so uh, and i'm not trying to be a downer i'm just saying in the chain gang scene where they're in the house of the old lady and the other like sheriff or whoever that person comes in who doesn't i doesn't seem to work for the chain gang uh, bosses he just seems to be local law enforcement he comes in that guy is the old woman turns him in when uh when they have when one of them has to use the bathroom uh she she she, she spills her guts he pulls a gun and they immediately just mob him and then they leave there isn't like like the the all of the progression towards how funny this bit has been uh kind of falls off right there and that was something that was surprising to me was after being inundated with all these great jokes to be like, wait a minute, why wasn't that funnier? And by the time I'm finished with that thought, I go, either it was intentionally left to be like, look how easy anybody could get out of these situations, or it might have just been like, well, they can't all be game winners. Some of them have to just get us to the next. No, they, they, to your point, there has to be a diversity of laughs. Like, it's interesting when you go back and watch this, because I admittedly really dug this and I watched it three times, because I, I did watch it a fair bit in advance uh more so than usual for preparing for the show so you really start to pick up on stuff that's small that you might not have gotten the first time and that there's different layers in there and mel brooks is the king of this i really think mel brooks is just very very good at there's big jokes there's uh small jokes you can't go through too long of a dry spell a comedy background jokes exactly a comedy will not thrive when you go too long without laughing now you don't have you cannot hit grand slam after grand slam i don't think it's possible people where there's 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 laughter fatigue that's a thing and so the pacing of this is actually quite quite brilliant for a first-time filmmaker i mean it's i'm impressed at the the variety, the diversity, and the spacing and the pacing of of the laughs. I mean, these are things you can aim to do, but I mean, it, again, it all feels very natural for the format that they're using. Now, Woody Allen's an acclaimed director, but in an interview, he says he really thinks of himself primarily as a writer and a writer first. He has fun writing, but as a director, he's just bringing that vision to reality. It's executing. And um, but when he's writing, things are still malleable and they're always changing. And uh, as he turns it in and so he takes advice from his actors and he allows people to improv. It's a living, breathing thing right from the time that he's writing it to the time that it's produced for movies. So but he has the most fun when he sits down and writes. He said some people get paralyzed with like, oh, no, what am I going to do? But it's a very exciting phase for writing. It doesn't have the constraints of like being on schedule and time, which are, oh, you know, these are things that Woody Allen's good at. But that's not the part of the the taskmaster component of it um, isn't what drives them. It's it's the writing. As you pointed out, Dustin, 
it's a machine gun of jokes and that mind is churning in there as a writer and that writer is walking it through and refining it every step of the way and i think that the better woody allen movies of which i think this is one of them i think they show that I, th I think they show that craft and mel brooks is the same way you know he's making the movie he's writing the movie he's just a genius to have that carry through from beginning to end you just keep polishing it and it keeps getting better and better and better and with that particular sheriff in that in that scene I think it's important that that's a different character than the previous like chain gang boss who oh, yeah. was menacing. Yeah. Oh yeah. It, he was. It, it, I don't think he can be a buffoon like that. Like that guy was actually intimidating. Right. right. So so introducing this this other character who's there just to be an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> then like that that worked out. Yeah. And it, and it was it was meant to be that. Chad, this is San Francisco. Woody Allen's so New York. This is early in his career. New York worked out to be a place that he could shoot all this stuff. Did you like the atmosphere that this thing throws you into? You can listen to our recording on the conversation and my thoughts of San Francisco as a setting. I don't notice. This could have been literally anywhere for me. I know I'm hurting some people's feelings right now, but I, it... It could have been in the middle of Indiana for me. There's there, <laughs> there's nothing here that screams this is a major metropolitan city to me. Well, I mean, they're, they're focusing on banks and prisons and apartments. So yes. to your point, it is a city. The conversation I will question you more on. I don't want to go. That's another podcast for another time. That's, uh, yeah, that was. He's, don't that, you that, dare lecture me on architecture. Yeah, that movie was <laughs> that movie was saturatedly San Francisco. And um, I appreciate that. And Bullet, Bullet was another one we've covered, too, that was like deliciously San Francisco. It was a San Francisco treat, if you will. Un unless they show me the Golden Gate Bridge and the house from Full House, I will never know that it's San Francisco <laughs> ever. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Your city, is, yes, your city is unremarkable. I do Shots think fired. that the gloomy, overcast nature of what San Francisco throws you many times destroyed some of the more poetic or like, you know, dreamy moments of when they meet each other. It's like a super foggy day when he walks up and meets her. And it and I, I was sitting there going like, man, couldn't they come back and shoot this on a day like where there was sunshine? And the answer is no, it was San Francisco. They, they didn't get that ability. But I was sitting there going like, wouldn't it be better if like you had a bunch of warm tones to like sit there and make this like, uh, like you know, again, like when Happy Gilmore is in his happy place. Let's talk about another masterpiece, Leprechaun, when uh, another thing that Chad and I covered, <laughs> uh, which is that there's a scene, there's a scene where they uh, hide some gold in a truck near a beautiful tree. And that is maybe the most beautiful picturesque scene in the entire movie. And it's not a movie about picturesque things. Yes. I noticed that foggy day. Uh, when they're taking that walk right before he asked her to dinner. And I did think to myself, this wasn't a decision. Right. It's just foggy. Yeah. And that's okay. But then again, the quality of the version I watched also wasn't that great either. So it didn't, uh, it, it wasn't as noticeable perhaps, but uh, it, it was something like, well, this isn't a problem though. This could just be any day and that's okay. What, what we're focused on is this little budding relationship. And the lie. And our narrator tells us, too, that, like, he continues. I, th I think the narration is he continues his ruse or he might even say, like, his lie continuing his deception. And I was like, oh, this becomes the issue is that uh, he's going to because, you know, this is my first time watching it a couple days ago. And I'm like, I'm thinking, oh, is this going to become a point of conflict is that he's lying about not being in the Philharmonic? But it really isn't. She sticks no. with him immediately. Like, oh, okay, great. So 
then what is our point here? What is our what is our big sort of plot like driving device? And I think when I tried to answer that question, I was like, well, it's just kind of a parade of follies. And then he gets caught and sentenced to 800 years. If he's lucky, he can reduce the sentence to half. Which is a funny line in itself. I found myself, I found myself where the plot was. Uh, does it matter? No, no. I think there's funny things happen along the way, and it's. But it, and I think that's all we need. It's strung together with we have an, a person who's inept at everything he does. You know, I mean, even just applying for a legitimate job was hilarious to watch him like say like you know, have you worked in uh, uh, with computers before? Yes. <laughs> like just lying <laughs> it's like wh- wh- what computer what high-powered computing system did you use uh my aunt has one which in 1969 <laughs> is an absurd comment that's like saying right. your aunt has a data center at this point what kind of office did you work in before a rectangular one <laughs> <laughs> and the guy's actually like writing it down not saying like get out of my office you hooligan like right I, I, I think... used to manufacture escalator shoes for people who got <laughs> nauseous in elevator shoes. I feel like nauseous is in the vocabulary, even though I think we all know that you're, when you're feeling sick, you're nauseated. I feel as if the word nauseous is in such widespread use because of Woody Allen. He's, he's the guy that's nauseous. He's nauseous. He's feeling that way. Yeah. His, his, his anxieties are written so well into these characters that make them... It's funny, these, 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 these insecurities come from somewhere, but they come into all of his characters and his writing, and it just re- results in something very funny. Seinfeld's a lot like this, too, to be honest with you. You know, somebody who has this uncomfortable way of looking at the world, and, you know, and then these little things and ticks and quirks inside of yourself, when framed properly, are hilarious to everybody else who doesn't function that way. And Woody Allen's got that, too. I think it's infrequent during the movie that uh, the comedy is driven by somebody else. Uh, We do get a revolving door of straight men in the particular bits or scenes. And then there's our, our, there's one scene in the middle that stands out as, as a little strange, which was when they're introducing Fritz, the director. uh, And I'm, and, and all of a sudden it kind of pivots to where like, Virgil's the straight man and Fritz is the guy that's being a little too intense and I found myself immediately losing interest it's like oh no the, the, we need Woody back driving this and having somebody else respond to his antics or his insecurities whatever they are as opposed to dealing with this other guy uh, there's another time when it's solo it's not a back it's just solo I believe they're uh, interviewing somebody at the end of the movie the name is Stanley Krim and his subtitle is, he's a cretin. <laughs> and he's the amateur photographer who caught his bust by the FBI. And like that is just a joke. That Woody Allen said, it'll be funny to get an interview of someone who can't get to the point and ends up describing Oh my gosh, breakfast. I hate people like this. That made me laugh so hard. <laughs> and I think that was it. like, well, we need to put this in, but we can't have it be Virgil doing it. Let's have it have to be somebody else. And it was great. Uh, because everybody knows someone like that, and it was, and that guy is a cretin. It was very funny. Yeah, it was very, very funny, and I, I, I'll challenge that. I think Janet Margolin gets you laughs. I don't think she's just just being pretty and like being funny for like, haha, the pretty woman's with this 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 dork. I think when she's talking to the uh, the interviewer, of just like it wasn't you know the life of crime. I just think 
if he had been good at it, it would have been. <laughs> like, yeah. he, he never made the top 10 want, most wanted, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, she says things in a very dry, again, naked gun sort of way. But they're very funny. And to Chad's point, it's hard not to laugh when you're doing this stuff. And she does it in a way that does mind. She's minding comedy as well. And I, I got to give her some credit. I mean, she's dealing with an absolute idiot next to her. And to stay in a certain degree of chemistry right. that keeps him in his zone and then keeping the volley. Yes, it is technically a straight man rule, but it's more than that. I need you to bake me a chocolate cake. You're allergic to chocolate. I need you to put a gun inside the cake. I'll bake you the cake, but I won't put the gun in there. Like th that little volley back and forth is one that I'll remember for a long time. She does hold her own for sure. In Bond, like they would get Ursula Andress off the plane and she couldn't speak a word of English. So she has a very hard time. Like, you know what I mean? Like she's being dubbed <laughs> over. So, I mean, she's there for other reasons. Um, Let's get Ursula out of the box. Yeah. Time to shoot. So um, I just want to give Mar Janet Margolin uh, credit. I, I think Woody does do a good job of writing good female co-star roles for him and he gives them something of substance to work with and i think he does that for janet margol in here yeah definitely uh, she'll come up later for me but i really enjoyed her performance i like that kind of dry humor well, what am i supposed to do he's my husband yeah <laughs> like right. he's you were setting out bullets and cookies <laughs> Yeah, and also, like, you know, serving coffee with a tea bag in it or literally burning yeah. a steak in the package and dropping it on the <laughs> plate. I mean, these are very funny things that are happening. And without the proper delivery or by a totally untalented person, this doesn't work. So um, she's 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 got her own lifting for sure. I, I really think that she, she she did a great job as well. The, the prison gate gag uh, was a funny sight gag because we were talking about like locations and settings going back a little bit to where we were. The prison gate being huge and being broken by a tiny little like pea shooter like pellet gun <laughs> like with like a little yeah. padlock that wouldn't even be on your locker at high school. Like this is a very small lock. Like that was a hilarious sight gag. Like they use the locations to their advantage, I think, for good laughs. The bank scene was very, very funny. And how this thing was growing and how people got involved as he's trying to rob the bank. And it's a misspelling. And just by the time they're in this office and then everybody's coming over and then hard cut, like he was thinking like, I mean, how are you not getting in trouble for this? But hard cut to him being in jail, which is hysterical because of how big it got before he was thrown in jail. Like you're almost sitting there going like, is he just going to walk out of here with his tail between his legs being laughed at? No, he goes to jail. But they, they drag it on for so long that that becomes a point where you're like, wait, is he? And then it's funny. It's also accurate. We do indeed have to have the note initialed by our vice president. It is our policy. Wow. <laughs> Insider info. Insider yes. information, yeah. Well, I, I got to say, I know you mentioned that that scene where he misspells gub is like on the top 66, top number 66 of 100 or something like that. I did feel like in the moment that joke went on too long. But we got just an incredible payoff 30 minutes later when he's describing or he's talking. He, he doesn't even misspell it. He says, I know how to use a gub. Oh, did I say gub again? <laughs> like, <laughs> Janet Margolin corrects him again. See, that's another good moment for yeah. her. She's like, gun, gun. <laughs> and he's like, right, right. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And so, so the, the, the jokes that earn a callback are very memorable as well. I like that better than the initial 
very busy scene with uh, the the original attempted oh, see, robbery. See, I'm a troubled speller. Chad will let you know. So I've had I've had enough of these humiliating moments in my life that I could see myself getting into apt naturally. What is apt? No, no. See, it's act. No, that's a B. <laughs> I'm I'm more of a, a locking him away with an insurance agent. That's my style of joke. I I kind of agree with Je- Dustin. Now you've got me saying Justin. Yeah. My goodness, what <laughs> what happened here? I, I don't know. I was just laughing I, and stuttering. I, you know, not, not you guys never you. make this mistake. I do not. He is Dustin. But nevertheless, the the scene with Gub it went on a bit too long. It was a bit too belabored with that oh, point. Wow. But. Is... It it was very funny, but some of the one-offs for me were were funnier of, okay, locking him in with the insurance agent, and the insurance agent was very excited to talk to him as they're descending mm-hmm. into the cellar-like structure. <laughs> I forgot about that. That's a good one. We're going to have to that's... give you some life with, some, with, with a short term, and then... Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's where I am in life, where I find life insurance policies funny. Protect your home, protect your life, people. <laughs> Yes. Uh, I don't know. I feel like Groundhog Day also has a great life insurance uh, scene with uh, the guy who wants to sell him insurance every day. So I mean, Needle nose Ned, Ned the head. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ryerson. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like maybe maybe insurance salesmen are funnier than we've given them credit for because that's now two movies where they're very funny. Yeah. Yeah. Next top 10. We're going to do top 10 insurance agents in movies. Well, you just got done saying you needed more movies with prison breaks in them. Yes. And prison movies. And here we are. Like, you know, we did Shawshank Redemption. Chad's like, "Mm, this is tremendous. This just hits a note for me. So give me more of this. Well, here you are. But it it was period piece. It was period piece prison break. So this doesn't quite hit that nail but what we are coming up on this is our second movie in a row that inspires austin powers which shouldn't be a thing but here we are the music that we get for the chain gang it's the austin powers theme song yeah i thought that was the austin powers theme but uh, it's quincy jones Soul Bossa Nova by Quincy mm-hmm. Jones, written yeah, in 1962. It, I don't want to take anything become... away from Austin Powers, but it's just like, oh, I have come to associate this so much with Austin Powers, it's, it almost hurt to take it away from that. Yeah, yeah, we we come off on Her Majesty's Secret Service, which is heavily what inspires the first Austin Powers, and here we mm-hmm. have the theme song, so maybe our next yeah. movie will also cover Austin Powers in the weirdest time frame have we covered austin powers at all we no haven't. no i would love it's to. it's wild to go back and realize how good they are and we, i'll stop right there we tried and and russell's wife fell asleep during the opening credit <laughs> that wasn't, she had she, never she seen was it. legitimately tired but she did fall asleep in the opening titles <laughs> we were so excited we're like she hasn't seen it let's watch it and she was down for it and by the opening credit like the she was gone she was like literally mouth open asleep like like when like while the credits were playing and i looked over and i was just like oh no but then i was like don't worry sarah hasn't seen this chad's wife and i was like and then i i quickly realized that this wasn't connecting there was a this was there was a um like she's not like a big reacting person so it wasn't like a horrified face but it was just like a Oh no, no, oh, no, no, my no. Wife you're, not get having, it. you're not having fun, are you? <laughs> Super tangent. One of our first dates was to see Austin Powers Gold member and her father 
told me that that movie was everything that was wrong with cinema. I was like, well, we are off to an amazing start. <laughs> yeah, well, who's got the podcast now, Gary? Yeah, right? one, 166 <laughs> episodes in. I think you're getting some credibility now, Chad. I, I, Boom, Chad. I'll stick up for Goldmember, but uh, there are more egregious issues also, with yeah, cinema. I, I would also say that like our 90s comedies are, are where we get some jokes that very clearly don't hold up anymore. I think yes. I, I uh, and there are definitely parts of the Austin Powers franchise that don't hold up anymore. For sure. But even still, the general like tone of those movies, when I will have to eventually do one, maybe not all of them, but they they really do surprise you with like, whoa, I I didn't remember it was this good. One additional thing, I watched this movie on YouTube. It was the only way I could stream it. It is hard mm-hmm. to find. You won't find it on Apple, Apple or Prime. I picked right. up could... I picked up an old copy. Like and I was kind of sitting there going like, was I a jerk who told people to watch the movie on the podcast when they can't acquire it? And yes. I, I don't know. Yes, you were. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did. I guess find that's it. I guess that has to do with Paloma, the, the, the movie company who made it was only around Perhaps. for a short period of time. So I guess their rights are I'm not a lawyer, but I'm I'm sure they're tied up somewhere and they're not cleanly under the Warner Brothers or Universal or, you know, you know, Disney yeah. umbrella at this point. So Figure that well, on out. YouTube. Get that work- yeah, I was gonna say, figure that out. Get that worked out because this movie deserves to be seen. It it holds up well though. Like that's the other thing. To your point, Dustin, uh, it doesn't feel like they're throwing a lot of like references around of like the '60s that aren't like connecting or like little like you know cultural references that a mockumentary might fall into. It's- mm, you definitely, to quote a John Mulaney sketch, you cannot say midget anymore. And gypsy is certainly a term that is not in vogue. They are Roma people. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a lot of that in this movie. I don't know if there's a lot of it. There's enough yeah, to where yeah. you notice it. Yeah, I mean, it, it opens with sexual assault. He's feeling up all the girls. And for a Woody Allen movie, it's like, this is not a great way to start this movie. Well, okay, okay. correct. If, it wasn't like, if this was just <laughs> done today in a Judd Apatow movie and somebody mentioned that in the dialogue, you'd laugh and... That that would still be funny today. It's a little bit of a who said that thing kind of moment like that you're having that That's on. True. But, That's um, true too. But I mean, other than a few of those little syntax items, this is a nineteen sixty nine movie. We're we're you know, we just got done doing on Her Majesty's Secret Service same year, actually. That was fraught with things of like, <laughs> Yeah, don't do that today. Don't smack the lady or like um yeah. like, or like I need someone to dominate her. Yeah, I was gonna say, like, there was a lot of stuff <laughs> that you had to sit there and go like, I had fun. But you do have to take a moment and look to your son and go like, yeah, don't actually act that way. Like, right. Yeah, women do not need to be dominated. <laughs> but um, oh boy, I was a, a part of this James Bond thing and uh, couldn't make a movie like that. You understand? Okay. <laughs> That's pretty good. Um, another thing is Martin Hamlish uh, is involved here. I was surprised. Uh, Marvin Hamlish wrote an opening score that was quick and rushed. That had this heist feeling that worked. It had exciting horn blast in the beginning, and I was like sucked into this thing. And it also is funny. It gets you up, and the big documentary kind of pr- presentation is funny because we're dealing with such an inept person who can't, you know, you know, it's just so bad at this. The packaging is something that's bigger, and the music is also again like the camera work helped reinforce the joke. The music was bigger than what we the, the topic that we were covering, so that was funny too. EGOT winner Hamlish. Yeah. Yeah. And all, and also I think the biggest 
perhaps the biggest dramatic hit of musical score to go along with a crime is a super low brass heavy like 10 second hit when he's breaking into the gumball machine to pay for dinner on that date <laughs> and we didn't talk about this great musical number gonna see miss liza gonna go to mississippi like i thought that yeah. it's just so funny to have like this chain gang with the, like these all these tough hardened criminals out there and to see woody like in his small frame out there swinging a sledgehammer and trying to get into the song and getting carried away. And then everybody's just kind of like, <laughs> like even the prison guard kind of comes over there and gives him a hard look like, yeah, let him sing that song, not you. <laughs> Listeners to the podcast, I don't know if you'll remember listening to this decades in the future, but in 2021 and 2022, there was a weird time when people on YouTube and Twitter and all these social media were really into like pirate shanties and sea shanties. And it was stupid. And so when you're thinking about this years from now, maybe between now and when you're listening, dear listener, there'll be a time when we really get back into chain gang songs. Look no further than the soundtrack to Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? for Poe Lazarus and several other better chain gang songs. Well, that was a great soundtrack in general. So just, Correct. just listen to yeah. that soundtrack for sure. So. And listen to our episode on it. Oh, that's a plug. Good job. There we go. Yeah. I, I'm still reeling from Dustin saying sea shanties are stupid. I, they are. <laughs> I will have to fight you later. I'm sorry. Anytime you put Chad and I on an episode, you're, you're going to get a lot of plugs. Dustin's probably like, gosh, how many times do they have to keep plugging themselves? They are I've learned this from y'all. I, I, I started doing this. <laughs> are, are we Are we not doing phrasing anymore? No, <laughs> that's old too. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've, I've started, I've started reference, I think in... Um, uh, Master and Commander. We we brought up uh, Titanic. And we're like, go back and watch that episode. You are the sure. boat and Nathan are your big boat boys. Yeah, yeah. yeah both of those have boats, and you know what else has a boat? Jaws. Jaws. <laughs> they need a bigger boat, and we cover Jaws. Mm-hmm. We talk about that too. Yeah. Very good. There we go. All the boat learning movies. from the best, y'all. Yep. Deep Rising has a boat. Yep. Yep. This is going to go on forever. <laughs> we should of stop us talking. We should. Stop. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We, yes. Let's we hand out some awards, guys. Much better. Uh, Dustin, who's your MVP here? If there was ever a time to ask this question, needlessly, I think I'm doing it now, but who is it? It's, it's Woody Allen. His, his choices for what he wanted to do are very express, and you get it all, and it's fun, and that's all you need. I, I, I did mention that, yeah, the plot disappears, and does it matter? Not really. Uh, when I look at a movie, do I want plot? Yeah. Doesn't mean, like, I'm right. I just know it's not there. That's okay. Woody Allen delivers the bits, the jokes, the gags. They keep coming back. It was great. MVP. Yeah, Chad, MVP. I went with Ralph Rosenblum. He He's the editor. I mentioned a lot of what he did. Uh, he corrected a lot of what I feel like were Allen's mistakes and missteps. He reinstalled what is now known as the funniest material. He rearranged some of the scripts, so the interview segments were cut up, and it was funnier. He shifted the tone as far as musically, where it was downbeat and morose to this ragtime and bossa nova, and he also changed the ending. The ending was Woody Allen getting shot by the police, which I think if we were talking about it now, we would have a hard time saying that's funny. Mm -hmm. Whereas now... We have this funny ending where he accidentally robs a friend who happens to be a cop and he goes back to jail. That's a lot better. So Ralph Rosenblum, I really think, saved this movie. That's a very good shout out to him. And in fairness, I mean, like 
uh, Rosenblum complimented Woody Allen for just saying like, you know, I would make a suggestion or make point out something. And then he had Woody had a virtuosic ability to adapt, turn the corner and uh, just go whip out like pages of content quickly. And that would just fit perfectly within his suggestion. So they had a good chemistry to your point, Chad. So he is a we've given Woody Allen like this, you know, sole credit, but he is playing off of his actors, allowing improv to happen as well as responding to Ralph Rosenblum's suggestions. And it goes together well. So you're right. Um, Woody's a team player. So without him on the team, this wouldn't be as good. So it's a good choice. I'm going with Woody Allen as well, though. So he really doesn't have a lot of credits. He only does what's new Pussycat, what's new Tiger Lily and Casino Royale. And he has good, good moments in these. But just as an actor, I'm impressed. But the fact that he wrote this, the fact that it, how many times did we say this influences something that comes later? So yeah. many times. And I think we did it over 12 times, like more than a dozen times tonight. That's actually really impressive. And I didn't even come in prepared to say that. It just started organically coming out as we started discussing. I'm sitting there going like, wow, I get, I now really, I thought it was funny. And it should be on the 100 funniest movies or whatever. But then I was sitting there going like, no, I get it. AFI is more about impact. And my first thought was like, I really enjoyed this. This doesn't, does this necessarily need to be an AFI thing? I guess it's just the mockumentary thing. And I'm like, no, it's not just the mockumentary thing. It's the approach. Best supporting, Dustin. Hard question. Very few meaningful roles with a lot of screen time here. Um, I'm going with kind of an offbeat answer. James Anderson as the chain gang boss. He was given a role to play. He followed it through. He wasn't allowed to be funny. He wasn't allowed to be silly. Some of his other guys are silly. For instance, the guy who's whipping the wall instead of the man, the shadow. Yeah. Like, he, he, he was humorless, and he was meant to be menacing, and he was. He was someone you were trying to get away from, and that presented one of the very few conflicts in this movie. So I was like, I got, I got to give him some credit. Otherwise, I, I, I believe that we'd be going to Louise. You know, we'd be going to Janet Margolin, and I expected one of you two to say that. She deserves her flowers. But I, I wanted to give James Anderson his credit, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I like how he, like, loses his mallet off of his sledgehammer, too. It's like, he's inept at being in a chain gang. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's like, bad at that, too. <laughs> even that guy's just like, what is wrong with you, son? <laughs> like, kind of look <laughs> yeah. on his face. And that, that <laughs> that's good to have from that, that serious character. Chad, who's your best supporting? Janet Margolin. Yeah, I'm going to give her, her her flowers. She's the doting Louise. She's obviously the straight man here, but we've talked about how good she is in that role. The fact she's able to keep a straight face, even as Woody Allen is awkwardly pawing her and unbuttoning things, and just even her interview segments were highlights. I enjoyed every time she came up. Yeah, that's me too. It's hard. I mean... As Justin pointed out, the people are coming in and out of this at a rapid pace. Wait, so many did you just call him Justin again? What are you doing? This is crazy. I know. Yes. Right? Yes, do you we, have another? Do you have another Ustin in your life? We, yeah. I'm, oh. I'm sorry, man. Did we, I say? Did I just we, say Dust? Did I say Justin? You did. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, <laughs> Only I, I, this no, last no, one was really more of me. like a Django. Oh, this last one was more of like a DJ at once. Oh no! Terrible. If I can't do your last name, I can't do your first name. Um. All right, so sorry. Um, as Dustin, who even am I anymore? I don't even remember the point I was making. It might, it might be ingrained. Sorry, we did jump on that. You were talking to someone named Justin about. 
I don't know what. God knows what. Yeah. yeah. You were saying I've got an open position on my podcast. I ran off my other guy whose name sounds like yours. <laughs> now we've got to hire a Brad. We'll have a Brad and Justin <laughs> podcast. I don't know. Go go back out and check out the one where you guys had another chat on with you. Uh, That's one of my favorites because that was an early one for, for Dustin. And he's just like, I don't know what to do. Robinson. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, we all ended up being Chads at the end of that yes. episode. You're next. That's appropriate for Invasion of the Body Snatcher and Invasion of the Chads. Um, yeah. Everybody will become a Chad when, when this thing is over. I thought that was so meta. Very good job. Janet Margolin, amazing job. And Hidden Gem, Dustin. Lonnie Chapman and the rest of the chain gang, but particularly like the leader of those other hardened criminals. Yeah. Uh, I, I thought they, uh, they hit their marks and they hit their cues and they were very funny in just being background roles. And I, I think we did mention earlier that this movie is much more physical, maybe not slapstick, much more physical than you think. And uh, I, I love when physical comedy is, is prevalent, maybe put on like, you know, not just the opening act like the main show and them shuffling around in that, in those chains. And they're all wearing the same like khakis and like, you know, like button up shirts. Yeah, it, it was, it was wonderful. So they're my hidden gem. Very nice. Yes. Uh, Chad. I went with Jan Merlin, who's the other bank robber. He sounds the part, he looks the part, and he's a lot of fun. Like, as the guy of, hey, I should be robbing you. Look at me, look at this guy. Who wants to be robbed by this guy? Everybody Let's take does. a vote. <laughs> and like, Woody's like, not so much, not so much. Now who wants to be robbed by us? And then like, there's like a couple of people like, eh. Yeah. Everybody wants to be robbed by the handsome guy. That was great. My uh, hidden gem is going to be James Anderson as well, the chain gang warden, who is also Bob Yule in the um, To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm-hmm. Recast. If you had to recast somebody and put somebody else in their place, who would it be? Dustin. Well, I'm going to recast Miss Blair, and I'm going to have her being played by Raquel Welch, who would have been <sighs> 27 years old. Ooh. And I thought the real femme fatale person, not a lot of screen time, but I would love that. So my... that would be funny too to like um, because he's so doting over Louise at this point to go even even prettier and to have yet another pretty woman pining over this guy. That would be funny. Yeah, I think that's meant to also be part of the absurdity and to really up the notch by having one of the you know, most glam, you know, poster worthy models ever. I think that'd be very fun because it wouldn't take that much of a commitment from her. No, right. no, that, that's the cool thing about this format. You can get anybody to come in and do one of these little parts and. It could go a long way. Chad, if you had to recast somebody, who would it be? I understand this is blasphemy and probably doesn't make the movie work, but I'm still replacing Woody Allen. I'm going with Steve Martin. I like yeah. Steve Martin a lot. I think there's a brand of humor that Woody has in this that I, you're right. You've changed, irrevocably changed this that I don't know. I, that, that upsets me. Yeah. It does not upset me. I did mention that 10 years later is when we get the jerk. And if you pressed me, I would say that, you know, take the money and run, started something, and then the jerk refined it and improved on it. Agreed. Uh, so I could say that, like, I actually think that would be a, a, still a successful film. You take away the next 50 years of filmmaking or whatever, but, like, I, I, it's, I, I see what you're saying here. I, I'm picking up. 
Yeah, I'm I'm shooting way lower. I just want to in more of an insertion. One of the leaders of the prison break, and not the prison break with the Chang gang, but the prison break where they call it off and they forget to tell him, <laughs> yeah. which is hilarious. Um, I want that the the leader of that to be like Clint Eastwood, who was uh, who would have been doing like Escape from Alcatraz at this time period, mm, and that would um, be funny. That, and to have a real tough guy be like, eh, I can't do it tonight. Better tell him to call it off. And then, and then, like, and then have the middleman forget to call it off, and then have Clint Eastwood like glare at him, like, "What do you mean you didn't tell him?" <laughs> like, like, <laughs> I feel like that would have a very high payoff. And then, like, and then, like, have him turn out the window as like he's like, "Guys, can you let me back in?" Yeah, I would like that. I I would like that a lot. So, uh, best shot, Dustin. Chain gang on bicycles, and he doesn't have one. <laughs> I think it's nice. Very good, and. Uh... I, there were a handful of real laugh out loud moments with it when that one was like a rewind and rewatch again. Like this is just so perfect. I I, I briefly mentioned this earlier, but uh, YouTube when you're watching something has a little curve over the play bar, and if you enable it, the video will tell you like what is the most rewatched portion of whatever video you're watching, and it is the chain gang escape. So when people watch this movie, of the population of people that watch movies on YouTube. The one they see, they want to see the most is the chain gang escape. Wow. Okay. Nice. Yeah. That's some data analytics for you. That was very yeah. analytical. I wish I could bring that on every one of these. Uh, if only YouTube had all of our movies on there for free. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> if only Google knew how to handle analytics. <laughs> Chat, best shot. I really like the shot of Woody Allen in the booth trying to speak to the guy about his business proposition. It's one of the longest shots and longest takes in the entire movie. And the guy gets up and leaves and it winds up being the cop that you were talking about. And it leads into that nice scene where he eventually realizes, yeah, it's a cop and he breaks his own glasses. But the entire setup for that is just one long in-joke for us as we see the swap, but he keeps going. I think I mentioned this earlier. I think I talked myself into this one when there's a zoom in shot of the guard at the bank that switches to Woody Allen nervously robbing a bank. And one of his guys takes out their guns and, you know, he opens his mouth. And, and that's when we hear somebody else say, everybody, get your hands up. It's a stick up. And like Woody, Woody's brows like furrow. Like he's like he looks confused. He looks down at the ground and then like looks over at the guy. And the guy next to him is like also clueless. And the camera pans across at a nice pace to get to uh, from Woody's gang to see the other gang there uh, having a dueling stick up of the bank. It's nice when the camera gets gets last for you. So given that this is a comedy, I'm changing that to my best shot. Very nice. Best scene, Dustin. Trying to kill Miss Blair <laughs> when he when he turns when he turns the knob up to murder. Uh, he grabs the hot poker and it's too hot. He burns his hand. Then he try. <laughs> this was the biggest shock of the movie for me was when he goes like uh, i think the narrator said virgil got the idea to to put two sticks of dynamite together and hide them as candles i'm like yeah. whoa we went like completely like wily coyote here it is. Uh, and and then you think you're not going to get that payoff because you said oh they were too thick to put in my candlesticks so then you see a knife you see the electrodes driving a car through a house in, can't even like, physically the fit in there it's <laughs> so great and then you still get the dynamite payoff couldn't believe that like this ex this scene this type of scene existed 
uh, is my favorite scene, and I think it's the best scene. It's a great, it's a great choice. choice. Chad, what about you? What's your best scene? I went with the bank heist, the original Gub bank heist, even though I criticized it a little bit for the, the running joke going a bit too long. I did like when they kept bringing more more and more people in, and then there's an office meeting. I like the corporate red tape of, well, we can't do this. This is policy. And just explaining that to him, and he's just taking it in stride, like, oh, oh okay, go get go get your vice president and to sign off on this. And so all of that made for a very funny scene for me. Yes, that is mine as well. Best wardrobe or makeup moment, Dustin. Is it the pencil skirt? No, no, I, I, and this one was hard. I had a lot of things to choose from. I'm gonna go with a, a male and a female. The, the, I, I thought the best wardrobe outfit was Louise's all white ensemble when she's sitting in the park. Mm. It was absolutely lovely, breathtaking. But I also thought the, <laughs> the use of the, uh, him putting on all the t-shirts like we need you to steal the guards' underwear. Why? Yes. Well, we want it to be as authentic as possible. And he's that's very what ends detail up tipping. oriented. And so, so he's wearing all the shirts underneath. So he's wearing like, like a muscle 70 suit. 70 shirts. Was, yes. And well, like, let's, let's talk about this. Let's talk about a comedian wearing not a fat suit, but like a muscle suit. Like, how many times has that happened throughout history? SNL with like Pat. And he's or, so uh, small as a human Power. being, though. Yeah. 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 So, like, all, all of like these things, like, just have a lasting impression. So, I'm. I'm I think I need to have both on there. Yeah, that's a great choice. Chad, best word or makeup moment? I went with probably a stupid throwaway gag, but the Groucho Marx glasses on the parents. <laughs> they're funny. Yeah, they're good. It's just, it's obviously not working at all, and it's still funny for reasons I can't even really explain. My best word or makeup moments are definitely going to go to... Uh, the beige shirt that he does, in fact, end up wearing to the bank robbery. <laughs> <laughs> like, the argument about that of just like, you know, like, why don't you call the other guys and see what they're going to wear? Uh-huh. I can't do that. <laughs> they, they, I can't wear a beige shirt. Nobody's yeah. going to take me seriously. Yeah. Uh, th- that The beige shirt thing is very funny because it, it is trying to, like, it, is there any bickering in this little relationship? I got to say, uh, about the, uh, the, 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 Groucho Marx like glasses definitely reminds me of uh, Beverly Hills Cop when they give him like the banana glasses, which are very yes. funny. Um, and but also uh, the, I think a, a payoff of those Groucho Marx glasses is way later when they say Louise gets pregnant. They name the boy Jonathan Ralph Starkwell after Virgil's mother. Many <laughs> layers here. Men's name, mother. What's the point of the disguises if they're going to tell you the mom's name anyway? All of this had to be thought about. Maybe the most layered joke of the entire movie. So you've got a great wardrobe choice there, Chad. Really nice. I would like the uh, one little thing that this is a hard movie for me to improve on, but I would like the bank heist when they're clapping for the other guy to clap for them. When they're not clapping for Woody, I'd like one like lady to be like whispering in the background. like, I mean, he's got a beige shirt. I mean... yeah like have the audience see that it did impact someone that seems like the the step up you need a that's a mel brooks reference like mel brooks does not miss that type of callback i mean it's a callback to like as i say it's a callback to three minutes ago but yes (laughs) or monty python uh, yeah that's true as we we see uh 
Monty Python will build an entire castle on a on a on a kernel of like the of like this random thing that might have even been a miss, but they're gonna build it, build it, build it, build it into the point where like that looks deliberate. So to your right. point. And this is hard for me to change one thing for me, but Dustin, what about you? What if you had to change one thing, what would it be? Um, I think the ending could have been maybe more impactful, and I don't know how best to do it. I think if he were really close to getting away with one of these attempts, if one of them was close to a success, or one of them was even like, it's during the getaway that he opens his mouth, like maybe they've already succeeded in the bank robbery part, and that's when he starts talking about the bank robbery job while the cops are sitting behind him. I think that would be nice to see that he, because we know he's incompetent, but and he's not supposed to be good at it. What but. about if he just walks out the door after the interview and like the film crew's like, "Good job!" Like, we're, we're, like we'll get the edit edited and like, "Hey, where'd he go?" And like, I don't know where'd he go. Sure, yeah, it could be something like that, or some some type of um, some type of success for him. Now, not being shot down is already an, an improvement, but I I think that would be fun. It's already fun as it is. Soap gun again. It was very good. Was very yeah. funny. Do you know if it's raining? Yeah, because he's carving the gun in front of him. It's right. so good. I love how it turns into a huge fistful of bubbles, too, by the way. Not just like <laughs> not just like a like a white soap like where the polish comes off. Like it's like just holding suds. So, uh-huh. Um Yeah. Uh Chad, change one thing. I want more Janet Margolin interview time. I feel like her interviews were by far the funniest and you know, just the little touches of her playing Susie homemaker to a band of criminals is very very funny yes yes uh might change one thing i think it would be very funny when louise says my drawing's just not very good and he says no no i like it um i, I think it would be funny if you look down and then it was actually terrible yes that would be funny. Like, like kids artwork yes terrible. exactly like stickman or something like that like with or, the lake or, like or something john ham's character in 30 rock yes really exactly. i was yeah. a little disappointed we didn't see what she was drawing i was like either it's got to be very very good but then it's just kind of sad she has no self-esteem and that's not as funny but but what if it's legitimately bad and, and he doesn't know the difference in good art and bad art and he's like i like it <laughs> there's a bunch of different ways this could be done. You could get a, a a picture of their apartment later on in the movie and there's stuff framed and it's like awful <laughs> so, uh, yeah i i wanted to see what she was drawing more technically i do think if anything was driven into the ground a little too much the parents have a good laugh quotient early on they stick around for these interviews a little bit too much so i i would mm. i would fade their presence out sooner they go out anyway to chad's point this is well edited they're very funny earlier on later on i was like no we've, we've hit this joke so i mean mm-hmm. um maybe Maybe if anything is actually structurally changed, that might be my only thing that came to my mind, being a little more critical. Yeah. Could also change the name of Dr. Epstein. (laughs) Best quote, Dustin. I'm sensitive to real beauty. It makes me want to gag. The only girl that I had ever known was a girl in my neighborhood. She was not an attractive girl. I used to make obscene calls to her, collect, and she would accept the charges all the time. Nothing ever happened. I mean, after 15 minutes, I wanted to marry her. After a half hour, I completely gave up the idea of snatching her purse. <laughs> I decided to give that just my diction and not do my Woody Allen impression. Very good. It's still very good. 
I, go, yeah, yeah. I, this is actually mine as well, but I did like immediately really? if he does this purse <laughs> wow. snatching, he goes and then says, I'll take it one step beyond. He goes, I wanted to tell her that I actually wasn't in the Philharmonic, but she was just so impressed by it. Even though when she asked me questions about Mozart, she got suspicious because I couldn't place his name. Right. Yeah, that that whole that whole thing is very quotable. Yeah. Sorry to build on to your quote, but I mean it's it's no, mine too. It's, so you it's get a, a good double, one. You get a double dose. Chad, what about you? I just realized I'm a cop. How's it going? Oh, it's great. I've got a pension. <laughs> <laughs> that that end scene where he's just handing over mm-hmm. his wallet and everything, going casually along with the robberies, like see you later, bye. Oh wait, yeah. <laughs> I thought that was a great way to end it. The hypocritical, I used to hit him and teach him about God, but would he listen? No. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I love, this was a great um, moment for Luis of when he goes, I'm not with the Philharmonic. And she just sweetly smiles and she says, I know. <laughs> um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> five star scale, half star intervals. Dustin, what would you give? Take the money and run from 1969. Extremely funny movie way funnier than I thought. It's still a 3.5 for me. I don't give it the highest marks because similar to a Kung Fu movie, we'll say, where the plot isn't as important. What you're there for is the fighting. We don't care about the plot at all here. I say we, I mean me, but I think there's a significant proportion of people that would say, what's like the point? of all this and you realize the point is the jokes so this is better than a stand-up special and better than a particularly good episode of saturday night live but as far as a feature film where it's really just machine gun of jokes it's the best machine gun of jokes there is maybe but there's a reason why holy grail gets five and this gets 3.5 interesting i thought this was going higher for you there uh that's it i i wanted to speak speak on it highly and give it praise yeah but when you ignore one part of a pretty big part i think of movies i think you can do that in a comedy i think the comedy is to sometimes the plot is to create a framework for jokes comedies can earn five stars yes with a spine you take the spine out you're left with a lot of really a lot of other stuff yeah like if you look at like when we did the out-of-towners you can have the dramatic and the heart elements enter it. And you're right. A comedy can morph and become something more than just a comedy. And that's what it sounds like it takes for you. In this instance, yeah. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and Chad, what about you? I went three stars. This is a movie for me where the jokes are kind of like a roller coaster ride for me. Some of them work. Some of them don't. And honestly, towards the end of the movie, more of them didn't work for me than did work. I I don't really like the camera in Chala Bread. Like, that doesn't work for me. That makes absolutely no sense. There, there were too many gags of, like, taking the glass from the window in the jewelry store from, like, ha, huh, I, I, I guess. That it, it just, it's like the worst moments of Family Guy for me, where it's random for the sake of being random. And I didn't talk about this too much because I don't want to be a a huge downer on this episode, but this film is heavily weighed down by the legacy of Woody Allen. It's very hard to look away when he's got his hands in everything. And this is is a different scale than like a Kevin Spacey in Seven, 
that's hard enough. But uh, when it's to this scale, three is as high as I'm going to go. Got it. And I sense that that was there for you. So that that does not surprise me. I was going to say there's something else pulling at him here. And that that's it. That that explains it. And what's funny, I, I think those two jokes you brought up, the absurdity of the camera in a in a bun of bread, Hala, and then also uh, the the non payoff of him stealing the glass and not the jewels were actually two of my favorite jokes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, different strokes, and that's yeah, that's yeah. cool. I mean, he hits you with something. There's something here for everyone. Yeah. It's just I wound up in the Venn diagram a little bit on the shallower end than where I would have been had this been like a four or five star movie. And that's how yeah. Family Guy works. Nobody laughs at all of the jokes. Well, Brian right? Fry laughs at all of the jokes. But for everybody else, you know, there might only be 10% of the people that get that joke, but they're going to laugh really hard at that joke. And that's worth it enough to them. And so this movie does have that. Uh, I'm going to go 4.5. I've been, I can separate the artist from the art enough for me to sit there and say, wow, how many times tonight did we say that this influenced something else that I absolutely loved? I mean, if you're influencing, you know, the jerk, I mean, Austin Powers, whether it be Naked Gun, whether it be all of these Spinal Tap, whether it be a lot of these other things that I appreciate, and I sit there and go like, wow. And to mention Woody Allen's own progression, I'm sitting there going like, yeah, this is this is a really important movie. And I, I, I kind of, the first time I watched it, I was like, this is a solid four but the more we've talked about it, the more I've come to appreciate it, and the more I get its significance. And more than ever, I'm like, get this on Apple. Get this out there. I don't understand why it's so hard to acquire. So I hope I hope that our listeners are able to find it, and I hope they're able to enjoy it as much as I have. So I'll go 4.5. But I've, I have inundated myself with it. And like, I've, like I said, I've, I've watched it three times in the course of two months. So I'm, I'm a big fan of it. Chad, next time, what, do you, what should we watch? Let's really help me out with this. Love to, yeah. Let's go back to the wonderful dark world of Tim Burton. Okay, excellent. Option one, Beetlejuice from 1988. Spirits of the deceased couple are harassed by an unbearable family that has moved into their home and hire a malicious spirit to drive them out. Option two, Big Fish from 2003. A frustrated son tries to determine fact from fiction in his dying father's life. And option three, Alice in Wonderland from 2010. A 19-year-old Alice returns to the magical world from her childhood adventure, where she reunites with old friends and learns her true destiny to end the Red Queen's reign of terror. What was the first one again? Beetlejuice. Dustin, what was that? I'm not even tempted at all. Oh, I was I was going for a joke that Justin... You aren't <laughs> getting me. That Justin, evil Justin. No! Murdered. Yes, you are evil Justin for murdering that joke. You are no sorry. longer Dustin. Your Dustin card is revoked. But yes, oh, no. we are going to say Beetlejuice three times. He appears. We must do it. All right. I like it. And to all the lords, ladies and knights, the Retro Movie Roundtable, we invite you to write, reach out to us. We want to hear from you. So subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at movie underscore retro. Emails at RetroMovieRoundtable at Yahoo.com. I don't say this often enough, but if you actually want to be on the show, if this is your kind of thing, if you know somebody who's a movie junkie who's got to be on here and you think would be fun to listen to, can speak well, wants to do this, tell them. 
we were always looking for making new friends. We're, we're out there creating a network, and uh, we like we like to hear from you. Recommend us your friends of friends and stuff like that. It's just fun to watch all those relationships grow, and that's one of the big things that we like to do here to build a community. So it it has uh, it has worked out well. So definitely continue to engage with us. We appreciate that. And producing and providing this podcast is fun, but not free. So we invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash retro movie roundtable. All contributions will go towards making the show better for you, the listener. And always, sorry, as always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Chad? Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing glue. <laughs>